Good morning. Much like last week, Pastor Wes asked me to ask people to move forward, and you'll notice that here we have Mark Hidgley and Empty Rose. So as we stand and get ready to sing, if you are willing to just kind of filter forward a little bit, that would be lovely. Otherwise, it's very sad and empty up here. So please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God. Set be your name, what a fast. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. You are the great God, and we've come to worship you today. Our desire is that you would speak deeply into our hearts and souls, that our worship would be pleasing to you, and that it would create more and more of your spirit in us. So we pray that you will make us aware of your presence during this time together, and we ask this through Christ. Amen. Before you're seated, take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. Just a couple of things I want to uh, mention happening in the life of the church. Uh, Just a reminder, Wednesday evening, uh, all of our ministries will be back on regular schedule uh, for children, youth, and adults. And next Sunday, we'll gather for worship at 829, 40, and 11. But just remember, next Sunday is uh, time change. So you need to move your clock ahead an hour or you will be late, I believe. I can never quite get that right, but I think that's it. Um, So... Please note that uh, I know we lose an hour of sleep in the spring, so just note that for next Sunday morning. Uh, Also, the college uh, is hosting a prayer vigil starting next Sunday evening. It will be a week-long event similar to what we've done here at the church, and we want to uh, be supportive of this event. So if you would like to participate in that, they're encouraging you to do so. There's some information in the bulletin about it. And uh, we'll try to get a link on our website to what they're doing so that uh, you can be aware of that and participate in it. There are a number of prayer concerns also in the bulletin. And I want to uh, be certainly in prayer for a number of needs and concerns both here as well as around the world. I want to pray for people who have been uh, devastated by the recent tornadoes and storms, uh, school shooting in the Cleveland area, uh, violence in Syria, just so many things happening that uh, we certainly want to be praying about. We also want to pray for the team that's heading back from South Dakota after being there this past week. They uh, anticipated arriving this afternoon. They had some trouble with the trailer last night, and so they had to spend the night just outside of Council Bluffs, Iowa. So they're hoping to get that fixed today, and then they have about a 17- or 18-hour drive still home. So I know that uh, they would appreciate our prayers. And we also want to give thanks to God for another baby born to our congregation, Addison Nicole Boone, was born Friday to Jeff and Andrea, and Jack and Jared, and we give thanks to God for this gift of new life. The scripture reading this morning can be found in Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 30. If you want to follow along in your pew Bible, it's on page 1043. Hear the word of the Lord. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house. The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. 
When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. This time we'd like to invite the ushers forward to receive our offerings. Oh 
spend some time praying together and if you'd like to use the altar as your place of prayer I invite you to join me otherwise please be seated Father we come today with burdens and concerns and Anxiety, fear. And we come today to lay all of these things at your feet. We are burdened about the world in which we live and so much of what we see of death and violence, disasters and pain. And we pray that you will bring healing in those most dangerous places and those places where the, the difficulties of life are greatest. 
Father, we pray for the burdens and the concerns that are right here among us. Comfort every person who is grieving today. And we pray your healing upon every person who is struggling with illness in the various ways in which it comes to us. For those relationships that are just not where they should be. We pray that you would bring about restoration. There are things that go on in in our lives, in our homes, places where we work, in our dorms, even in this church. There are conflicts and struggles and, and burdens, and we ask, Father, that you would be so evident in working that you would bring about resolution and peace and joy where there is anything but. Father, we pray for the team that's heading back from South Dakota, and we do pray that you would help them to to get the trailer repaired in a timely manner and that they would be home and would have a safe trip. And in the midst of this delay, help them to sense that you're at work. Help them to see you taking this, this circumstance that we would like to avoid and doing something miraculous out of it. And we pray that this would be so in all of our lives. That those hurdles we face and the, and the roadblocks that come to us and the pains and the difficulties and the struggles, that we would see you at work even in those things. Father, we pray that during this Lenten season, you would work deeply into our hearts. Give us a passion for Christ. Shape us into the image of Christ. Help us to see the love of Christ poured out for every one of us. And create within each of us a spirit of self-giving and self-sacrifice when we are so often tempted to be self-centered. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you for your grace in each of our lives. We offer our prayers to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when it teaches us the model for prayer, which now we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. stand and sing with us. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Oh, you rescue the souls of 
Father, we pray that you will fill that hunger in our hearts. As we continue in worship, feed us through your word. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. We live in a competitive culture. We're, we're always wanting to, uh, to think about who's the best. The college basketball season is getting near the, their tournament. And the, you know, it's all about who's number one. And you see that all the time as in signs and uh, you go to games and you watch players. And, and they're all doing this who's number one thing. You know, we're number one. And it's what everyone dreams about doing. It's why you play, in some sense, to, to be the best, to be number one. And, and there's a lot of good that comes from that. It is that spirit of competition and, and, and trying to, to get better and to be the best that has created a lot of the good things that are part of our society. Stuff that, that we, that we uh, appreciate and, and that we enjoy because people have wanted to do more and to, to move higher and better. But there's also an ugly side of competition. Competition can, can uh, downgrade into, I, can, I want to do as much as I can to make my opponent lose as much as for me to win. I, I just saw this week that there's a story that's come out of uh, the New Orleans Saints football team where they... One of the coaches was paying their defensive players extra money if they injured one of the players on the other team. And the worse the injury, the more money they got. That's competition that's gotten out of hand and ugly. And that is often what happens when our lives are devoted to winning and to being the greatest And that is certainly what we see developing among the disciples when we come to this 22nd chapter of Luke's gospel. Now, the the disciples have have, have come to uh, this table with Jesus, and they are eating, and Jesus has served them the meal. and, and And then he says, one of you is going to betray me. And the question around the table is, who one of us would betray you? And what intrigues me is that right after that, well, it says in verse 23, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And also a dispute arose among them as to which of them is to be considered the greatest. I wonder myself, how do you get from from a discussion about I would never betray Jesus to I'm the greatest? Maybe it went something like this. Well, I would never betray Jesus. I certainly wouldn't betray Jesus. I wouldn't betray Jesus. Well, I wouldn't betray Jesus because I love Jesus. Well, I love Jesus too. That's why I wouldn't betray him. Well, I love Jesus as well, but I think I'm a little closer to Jesus, so I would never betray Jesus. What do you mean you're closer to Jesus? I'm closer to Jesus than you are. No, you're not. I've been around Jesus a lot longer. I was the first one. I've been here longer than you have. Yes, but I got to do some special things with Jesus that you didn't do. And all of a sudden, there is this table erupting in argument. And you can just see Jesus sitting there going, I can't believe this. I've just poured out my heart to these people about going to the cross and everything that's going to happen. And I've shared this awesome meal with them. And here they are about to come to blows 
about which one of them is the greatest. It's gone from a discussion about who is the least like Jesus to an argument about who's the most like Jesus. A discussion of who is furthest away from Jesus to an argument about who's closest to Jesus. About who is least mature to who's most mature. And Jesus has to be shaking his head, thinking to himself, when are these guys ever going to get this? And he interrupts their discussion, argument, and says, you guys just don't understand the kingdom. You don't understand what I'm trying to help you see. My kingdom does not evaluate things the way the rest of the world does. Greatness in the kingdom is not about how you think it is and how the rest of the world tells you it is. Because in the rest of the world, it's all about who gets recognition, who gets fame, who has power. He says in verse 25... The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call them benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Now, it sounds like if somebody's a benefactor, that's a good thing, right? That, that's a positive thing. That means they are generous and they're giving of what they have to other people. And on the one hand, that is true. As far as I can tell, what he's talking about is that in many of the Roman cities, the most wealthy people did not pay taxes. But instead, they would make generous gifts to the city over the course of the year. And because the wealthiest people weren't paying taxes, the city was always having a struggle to stay solvent. And so in would come the the wealthy on their white horse to rescue the city. And here's a gift, and now the city can continue to operate as we want it to. And the people would all cheer them and say, wow, what great people, they've saved us once again. But what the people don't realize is if those people had just paid taxes, they wouldn't have that problem. And the people who are wealthy, these benefactors, use their wealth to manipulate decisions in the city. They use their wealth to control the city. They use their wealth as a means of of getting power. Because if you have wealth, then you get elected and you rule and you make all the decisions and you keep getting more and more wealthy. And what looks like generosity for generosity's sake is not. It's generosity out of selfishness. It's giving so they can get more. It's this idea of of this is what it looks like to be great. And if you're smart enough and rich enough to do that, well, good for you. You must be a great person. And here's the truth of the matter. We we, We like to have people in our in power in places of significance who we consider great we want people who can get things done we want people who can walk into a meeting and have and carry some clout you know that there's a reason why uh, you know besides her citizenship but there's a reason why mother Teresa would never have been the president of the united states I mean, that's not the kind of person we want when when we're up against other nations and when we're trying to to wield power and to hold on to what we have. We want people who we consider to be great, powerful, wealthy, and effective. And that's how our lives tend to be as well. We tend to see greatness as wealth and power and significance. So if you go to, if you go to a, a party, 
And you have this, this fancy party with, with all these people there. You have people who, who are served and people who serve. You have people who are invited and you have people who, because they have an invitation, and you have people who at the end of the night are going to be given a pay stub. You have people who, who can wear any clothes they want, these beautiful gowns and, and tuxedos, and you have people who are dressed in a uniform because that's their job. You have people who get out of a, a limousine and walk up the front steps and are greeted with handshakes and smiles and here, let me take your coat. And you have people who are directed to go around back where the garbage cans are and the, and the discarded boxes and walk in the back door and are greeted with demands and an apron. And we want to be the people who walk in the front door. We want to be the people who wear the fancy clothes. We want to be the people who got the invitation because that's a symbol of greatness in our society. And Jesus says, that may be a symbol of of greatness in our society, but that is not the symbol of greatness in my kingdom. And everything that Jesus is telling us is so foreign to us because it's so counterintuitive to our human nature. And it's so countercultural to everything we've been taught about what it means to be great. And so Jesus says, let me tell you what greatness looks like in my kingdom. The greatest among you should be like the youngest. The one who rules, like the one who serves. This word that he says, serves, is diakonos. It's from this word that we get the word deacon. It's often translated minister. It's what leaders look like in the church. Leaders are people not with authority, but people who are, who are known for their service, for their ministry of giving of themselves to other people. There are people who, who step in and help people when nobody else wants to. They're the people who, who give of their time and energy and service to people who are in need. Jesus says, this is what leaders in my kingdom look like. But he also talks about them being children. And he says, if you want to know what what these leaders look like, they have have childlike characteristics. Now, you know, we think about children. We love children. We, We embrace children. We love to be around them. But we don't exactly think about modeling our lives after children, do we? We don't think about emulating children. We think about them emulating us. We think about them following our patterns of life, not we following theirs. And yet Jesus says we're to be like children. This word, the youngest, has this idea of being the the youngest in the family. Now, there's a difference between being childish and being childlike. You know, people who are childish or children, when we think about being childish, we're talking about throwing temper tantrums, holding your breath till you get what you want. Taking your ball and going home. Those are childish characteristics. And I'm pretty sure that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about having childlike characteristics. When you think about the childlike characteristics, you have children who are trusting. 
They're innocent about life and the world. They always want to learn. I mean, what is the question children ask continually? Why? 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 Right? Why? Maybe an adult pulled the fire alarm. You know, they want to learn. And, and, and they're, they, they, there's just so much to explore about this world. And they want to know. And they're so content often to just rest in their arms of their parents. And they find satisfaction in that. And great joy in that. And children don't take themselves too seriously. They love to laugh and have fun. And children are vulnerable. You think about the difference between human children and children in the rest of the the animal kingdom. You know, if you've ever seen a a calf just after it's born, or a puppy, or a kitten, you know, it isn't very long, and they're up on their feet, and and they're walking around, and they're running around, and and they're able to to find some food. I don't think human, human children can't do that. I don't think that Jeff and Andrew are going to come home and say to Addison, hey, the fridge is over there, it's stocked, have whatever you want, you know, just take whatever you want whenever you want it. And uh, you're good, you know. This is home. Just, you know, feel free to do what you want. Get your own food when you like it. No, we don't do that with our children because they could, they wouldn't live. They're so vulnerable. They, they need someone to care for them. And we think about that and we say, well, wait a second. If Jesus wants us to be like children, that means we're going to be vulnerable. And, and that means we're going to be taken advantage of. And, and it means that, that we're going to be lowest on the totem pole. Yeah, that's exactly right. And children are vulnerable and they can be hurt and they can be abused and they, have, they are powerless to do much of anything about it. And Jesus says, these are the characteristics of people in my kingdom. No wonder we step back and say, whoa, wait a second. No wonder we wrestle with that truth. And we do. And all the while, Jesus is saying to us, I don't want you to just sort of think about being children. I want you to embrace this childlike servanthood as your identity, as my disciples. I want you to to embrace this. It's not, you know, sometimes we might romanticize being a servant. You know, but no, Jesus says it's hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. It's demanding. And it's going to be completely counterintuitive and countercultural to everything that you naturally want to think and do. But my kingdom is continually counterintuitive and countercultural to everything you think and everything the world tells you. And it's embracing that. Not just every so often, but actually making this our identity, who we are. Some of you may have heard or read the story about, um, took place at a Washington banquet uh, dinner last year. It's one of these, you know, big, fancy Washington, D.C. dinners where all the, you know, the top people, famous people, wealthy, powerful people are invited. And Valerie, Valerie Jarrett was there. And she's a friend, been a longtime friend of President Obama's from Chicago. And she had been invited and she was sitting at a table and she saw a waiter walk behind her and she 
just sort of out of the side of her mouth, sort of turned a second and said, hey, would you get me a glass of wine? And the waiter said, sure, I'd be glad to. So a few minutes later, the waiter brought back the glass of wine. And what she was appalled then to find out was that the person she'd asked to get her wine was not one of the waiters, but actually Peter Ciarelli, who was a four-star general and second-ranking general in the United States Army. And he was very nice about it. He got her the wine, he brought it to her, and she was just, you know, so embarrassed that she would do that. When you think about it, if if you're at a dinner like that and and unbeknowing to you, you asked your boss to go get you something to eat off of the hors d'oeuvre table, you'd be so embarrassed to do that. And here she is with this four-star general, and she's just made him a servant. And he was great. He said, that's fine. Later in an email, he wrote to CNN and said, you know, it could happen to anybody. He said, you know, I, I, was, I was standing, she was sitting, I was in full dress uniform, so my pants had two stripes down the side, and they looked almost exactly like the waiter's pants. You know, it could have happened to anyone. And, you know, we've talked about it. In fact, we're going to have her over to the house sometime soon just to, to laugh about it and get to know each other better. He was wonderful about it. And you can imagine a lot of people would not have responded that way. They would have reamed her out right in front of everyone in the middle of that dinner. And it's a great example of how to respond to some of those circumstances. But if you looked around that room and you asked the question, who in that room would Jesus want us to be like? As wonderful as it was for what that general did, he's going back to being a general. He, he, he got recognition and he's going to go back to, he did something so unusual for, for his place in society that everybody stood up and took notice. And Jesus isn't asking us to be that person. He's asking us to be the waiter and the waitresses that no one knew, that no one paid any attention to. They got no accolades, but just served, did their job. And went home. He's asking us not to do this every so often, but to see this this childlike servant spirit to be what identifies us. And he says it's what identifies us because it's what identifies him. He says, you know, you go to a dinner, which would you rather be, the person who gets served or the person who serves? He said, well, you know, of course, you want to be the person sitting at the table and letting people wait on you. And Jesus says, of course, that's what everyone wants. But I want you to know I have come as the one who serves. The writer of Philippians says to us in chapter 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we're not Christ, but he does say, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross of of servanthood and follow me wherever that leads you. This is who Christ is. This is what Christ calls us to be. Childlike servants who give of ourselves. Not just every so often, but as the identifying feature of our lives.
think one of the reasons we struggle with accepting what Jesus is, is calling us to understand about greatness is because we have been trained, maybe it's our sinful nature, but we, we believe that greatness is achieved by what we do. So we look at people, we think people are great because they've accomplished this task or they've accomplished this task or they're able to do that or they become famous about this. And we see greatness attached to what we do. And so we're continually trying to find greatness in doing more and accomplishing more. And there's nothing wrong with accomplishments. There's nothing wrong with us wanting to to be better and to do better and to improve and to grow and to gain. Those things are important and they're they're part of who we are as human beings. The problem is that if if we identify those things with greatness, we're in trouble. I'm reminded of something that Craig Barnes says in his book, Hustling God. He said, when he was in seminary, a professor said to them one day, thank God every morning that you are unnecessary. Thank God every morning that you are unnecessary. And Barnes says, I thought about that for 20 years, trying to reconcile that in my mind, because I know, I know God is the creator of everything and he rules things and I'm not God. And I know that at some point people are going to replace me and and people can do what I do and maybe do it better. But something in me wants to believe that even just a little part of me is necessary. And he says the old professor would say to them, no, you're too important, too valuable to be necessary. You deserve to be loved. Because if love is based on being necessary, if love is based on what we do, then the moment we are no longer necessary, we're no longer loved. The moment our accomplishments begin to fade into the, ba- into the past, we're no longer loved. And Jesus says it's, it's so much more than that. It's about what I've done for you on the cross. That's what makes you great. And so Jesus can say to to the disciples that if they are willing to to invest themselves and to be this kind of childish servants, then there is greatness that awaits them that far outweighs the greatness of this world. Eternal greatness. You have to look at this. You wonder how in the world could Jesus promise this ragtag group of disappointments that they're going to be great in his kingdom and that they're going to have all these wonderful things that happen. And I think it's because God can see beyond where they are to where he wants to take them. And in not too many days, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon them and they are going to become the people that God, that Jesus knew they would be. And he's thinking the same thing about every one of us. Are we where we could be? no. But there are great things in store for us if we will surrender ourselves. And God has given us great joy and the greatness of his eternal kingdom. And the choices before us, we can have sort of the puny greatness now. Because we've decided to define greatness the way the world does. Or we can have this eternal greatness. Because we see the kingdom the way Jesus does. Gordon MacDonald says that you know you're becoming a servant by how you respond when people treat you like one. 
At some point, we come to the place of saying, I'm willing to be a servant. The thing is, what we're doing now is just preparing us for what we're going to do in all eternity. See, there's something in the back of our minds that thinks, all right, I'll be a servant now, but after I get done with this world, then I can put that aside, and now I can just kind of enjoy being great. But the scriptures tell us that we will spend our lives serving God and serving others. Because that's what the kingdom is about. What we're doing now in serving each other isn't something that we just do on earth and then forget. It's something that we're going to do for all eternity. Because that's what greatness looks like. Serving each other, caring for each other, worshiping the Father. And loving him as we love each other. Those are kingdom, eternal truths, eternal principles. And what we're doing now is simply embodying the kingdom. As we see it reach its fulfillment in the self-emptying of Christ on the cross. I was thinking about the, the movie... The Poseidon Adventure. Have you, have you ever seen The Poseidon Adventure? Not a few of you. If you don't know the story, it's about this, this uh, cruise ship that's sailing in the ocean, and uh, I believe in the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, there, you know, it's a, it's a ship event for uh, these people who are having a great time, and they hit a storm, and in the midst of the storm, this huge wave crashes into the ship and eventually flips it over. So that it's upside down, floating in the water. There's a big air pocket that develops in the ship. And so a number of the people survive. And now they're trying to figure out what to do. How to get out of this problem. They have, the lights have gone out. And, you know, everyone's disoriented. And they're not sure exactly what to do. But the most natural thing in the world to do is to go to the top of the ship. To get out. What they forget about is that the top of the ship is hundreds of of feet underwater. But they just can't quite get away from that being the right thing to do. And so a great number of them make that their escape route and they drown. But there's a group of people pondering that maybe there's something else to do. And there's actually a little child among them who convinces everyone else that the way to get out is to go down, not up. And they climb down the stairs into the hull of the ship, which is now actually the top of the ship. And they bang on the hull until those who are looking for them find them and rescue them. And in the kingdom, the way to go up is to go down. The way to be great is to be least. My challenge for us today is that we, each one of us, ask God to create within our hearts a desire to want to be childlike servants. It has to start there. We have to want it. And then to ask God to give us opportunities to live out childlike service. That's a dangerous prayer because God's going to put us in places where that's exactly what he's going to let us do. 
And then third, to begin today looking for opportunities in which we can live out and express to people and be a presence of childlike service. I'm convinced that as disciples of Christ, we have fully understood Jesus and his kingdom. When we see this call to childlike servanthood, not as something we have to do, but as something we get to do. Because it's like Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace to us. This is a hard thing for us. We struggle with it just like the disciples. Pray that you would stir up something new in our hearts. That we would desire to be childlike servants of you and of each other. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.